you, you, you start to devalue your arguments on the anti-alcohol stuff when you go after something, a product that we're producing that has no alcohol in it. Welcome to Brews News Week, recorded on 25 August 2022. I'm Matt Kirkegaard, founder and editor of Brews News, and I'm joined by Bright Star Brewing Brewer, Brewing Consultant and IBA State Chapter Lead for South Australia, Steve Brockman. Welcome back, Steve. G'day, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very well. Much better than Sabrina, who won't be joining us this week due to illness. She's uh, not quite been able to shake the lurgy and has absolutely no voice. So it's uh, just you and me. That doesn't sound any good, Sabrina. Hopefully feeling a little bit better today. Uh, I think it's par for the course at the moment. You know, there's this post-COVID world. If you don't have COVID, there's something else uh, waiting to to uh, catch you up. And good on her for realising she was sick and calling in sick. That is the right thing to do. Well done. We Yeah, exactly. So uh, anyway, a lot of news about. So how about we uh, jump straight into it and... Uh, Mate, last Friday afternoon, I was, I was taking a, a, actually a weekend away. I was just pulling into a little cabin by the lakeside for a uh, bit of a getaway, and I get the breaking news that Good Drinks Australia has gone into a uh, trading halt, and uh, it turned out that Good Drinks Australia has bought Melbourne's stomping ground. And uh, not only that, but we followed up on Monday, details emerge of the stomping ground buyout. Last Friday, publicly listed brewer Good Drinks Australia announced it had acquired Melbourne-based independent brewery Stomping Ground. GDA paid $7 million in cash for the Victorian brewery, as well as $4.0 million uh, ordinary shares in Good Drinks Australia, which are worth an estimated $3.4 million, uh, according to Tuesday's share price. The acquisition sees Stomping Ground retain its status as an independent brewery under the Independent Brewers Association definition. Founders Guy Greenstone, Steve Jeffers and Justin Joyner will become significant shareholders and join GDA executive and management teams. To be honest, I'd been hearing rumours. I don't know whether you'd been hearing uh, stories out of WA. You know, at Bruce News, we try not to report on the rumours because... Mate, I, I don't know how many times I heard Stone and Wood was for sale or Young Henry's is for sale and things like that. So uh, when it finally landed, it was good to see that they'd uh, been bought by, uh, you know, I guess, depending on your point of view, um, bought by Good Drinks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought this is um, pretty fantastic news, really. I'd heard a couple of rumors like yourself. And, and like you say, you can't really go on rumors all the time because there's always a million and one rumors out there. But um, no, obviously, they uh, they said they've been working on it for 18 months. Um, initially, had gone for capital and then realized there was a lot of synergies in between each of the um, each of the companies there. So I think um, Aaron's quote in that article was actually probably the most telling one. He's saying that uh, Good Drinks is growing so quickly that they actually, by acquiring Stomping Ground, they get a whole bunch of really skilled, really passionate people. Um, for their operations, so I thought that was that was fantastic. So one business really needs a whole bunch of people to come in and be skilled at what they do, and the other one's chasing a bit of capital and a way of kind of shoring up their national presence. It was a tick in both boxes for me, so um, pretty exciting. It looks like Stomping Ground will be the Victorian tentpole for GDA. Well, and, cool. and look, there is so much uh, involved in this. Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, you, you talked about capital, and uh, you know. Breweries growing, where you get the money from to do that is a huge thing. We've talked a lot about equity crowdfunding, um, you know, which is one way of doing it. Um, you know, Steve had some very interesting things to say about equity crowdfunding, describing the, uh, you know, I, I did ask, did they consider it? Because there is so much going. Um, and I thought it was funny that he discussed the uh, valuations as, um, 
daring and wild valuations, uh, <laughs> he said, but they got fair valuation, which was interesting. But they also got the um, capital injection they need from a, a very polite of state. Well, <laughs> very polite, but uh, at the same time, I, I got the feeling that he was making clear what he thought of uh, some of the comparable valuations. And I've actually had, I've had a few phone calls this week talking about the stomping ground valuation because like the AFR reported a headline figure of 30 million, which is a potential future valuation, not the actual valuation that the sale was on. You know, that's a whole lot of performance, um, you know, incentives that if they deliver and get the growth, which is essentially saying, well, if you do these things, then the business is then worth this, but currently it's worth this. And I've had a couple of people reach out talking about how low they thought that valuation was, which to me shows the very negative effects that equity crowdfunding valuations have had on people's perception about the valuation of breweries. And, and, and valuing businesses is, is, is very, very tough because Stomping Ground, with its significant retail presence, you know, it's got its own you know, large Melbourne venue, it's got an airport venue, it's got a, um, you know, the, the, the new Moorabbin venue. A lot of their volume is their own retail um, and I think breweries that scale on wholesale, the way a Bolter did, for example, will always have a different valuation because that's much more scalable volume. You know, if you're selling a lot of your volume through your own taps, then that doesn't scale as well, you know, as potentially as well as a, as a rapidly growing wholesale venue. Is, is that, you know, did you take anything away from those valuations or any similar thoughts? Yeah. So that that 10.4 initially, I thought, was low. And then I started reading into the performance targets. um, And if you hit all those targets, it comes out to be about 30.4 million based on current share price. Um, And I thought that was a good way of doing it, especially when you're absorbing a company into your company. You don't want them just to go, hey, the company's done. We've We've sold our company. Hands off. Coast along. This is a really good incentive for all of those people involved in Stomping Ground to continue mm. to kick goals. And with your comment on Stomping Ground being very much uh, sell over your own taps, over your own venues, um, I think the local tap house is also included in the deal as well. Yep. If you're looking to grow in a wholesale side of things, Good Drinks Australia up until recently had no venue. They were all wholesale. So up until recently, until Gage Roads built that um, uh, Fremantle location and they've also had the Atomic Tap Room. I think it's Sydney at yep. some point, but majority of their business is wholesale. So I think that's where that synergy comes in for Stomping Ground. If they're going to accelerate and some of these targets too, I mean, they're at 1.5 million litres a year at the current moment mm. to hit some of these targets, they need to be doing 6 million litres a year. So that's some big volumes to step up into, but hopefully Good Drinks Australia really helps drive that wholesale sale. So I think it's good for both companies. Uh, I might absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, as you say, Good Drinks has really shown their ability to drive wholesale growth in WA. So, and they, they, they've got sales forces. And that was one of it. Stepping back, it was really nice to have a chat with, um, and we, we've covered a lot of sales recently. And, you know, you always know you're going to get the sales pitch for why, you know, and, you know, Stone and Wood, who, you know, had been very vociferous in staying independent and, you know, voices from within that business riding down other sales or, you know, deprecating other sales, 
you know, and the loss of independence, that when they sold, they had to come up with a justification for doing that. And so there was, you know, famously, we found new custodians for our brand. That was, you know, it, it, it's business at the end of the day and all those things, but that left a bit of a sour taste in a lot of mouths, including my own, um, you know, the, the, the way that it went. To sit down and hear these guys and hear a you know very clear logic, um, you know Steve saying, look, you know we would have entertained offers from the big guys if they'd come along. You know, as as much as we didn't want to do it, we would have done it, but they weren't coming. But then Good Drinks approached us, and it just made sense rather than have two multiple sales teams and things if we wanted to go. I, there, there was just such a logic, and you know. If it wasn't, if it wasn't honest, it was a very, very convincing story. <laughs> you know the, the the way that they sold the sale. <laughs> well, it it definitely looks logical from the outside, and I, and I think um, or everyone involved anyway, Aaron Heary and then all the guys from uh, Stomping Ground obviously are quite authentic people. They'll uh, generally tell you straight up what's happening. So um, yeah, no, I, I I think as far as sales go. I think yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a bit of a refreshing sale. It's um, you know, it's not being sold to the dark side, quote unquote. Yep. In big well, years there, yeah. but um, no, and I and I, and I think it's yeah. Again, again, it depends on your opinion on all the companies involved, of course. But um, I think it's interesting too this kind of strategy from Good Drinks. So this is obviously um, we we're talking a little bit last week about how there's still in state lines that ability to. Um, resist or it's really hard for you to build your brand presence in another state especially with a venue this mm. is good drinks australia who's you know wa based now moving into victoria and instead of starting their own venue in victoria and establishing their own brand and getting it talking they've gone let's just take stomping ground which has a really strong brand in victoria that'll be our tent pole there in victoria which now begs the question does good drinks go on and buy other larger breweries in other states as part of their strategy. So do they go to Queensland yeah. and find someone? Do they go to you know, New South Wales? Well, they're, they're launching a place in Queensland. We, we've covered it. Um, I'm trying to think of what it is. It's going to be a venue in Queensland. So they, they are doing that um, on, up on the Sunshine Coast, which is pretty crowded already. But to, to take your point, yeah, rather than try and set up a brand in Victoria, which is hard, and effectively have to compete against a strong brand like Stomping Ground, it's worked for both parties to, to, to come together. And, you know, I, I look at some of the Victorian brands um, that could potentially be a little bit nervous now because, you know, suddenly you've got Stomping Ground getting that huge boost from the muscle that GDA have shown um, that they've got. And, uh, you know, it, it puts increasing competitive pressure on those Victorian breweries, um, you know, because it's not com- competition amongst equals. Suddenly, GDA, uh, GDA are giving Stomping Ground that bit of a boost um, in the wholesale market and uh, you know increased presence, and th- th- they've shown they've been able to do that. I-, I guess we don't want to speculate at what other brands might be up for sale, but there's certainly not a lot of buyers in the market at the moment. Um, and you know, will this actually, you know, will Good Drinks look to other brands, or is this going to put pressure on other brands to, for example, you know, brands of about the same size potentially coming together to, to consolidate um, and, and share resources rather than actual takeovers. Yeah, we saw a little bit of that in the US. So um, Oscar Blues went on a bit of a buying up spree as part of their 
conglomerate called Kaneki in the US. Um, and they started buying up kind of strategic breweries across the US in different markets and actually ended up with quite a large um, craft brewers co-op, you can say. But um, eventually that co-op sold um, as Kaneki mm. sold to an investment firm and then resold to uh, Monster Energy just recently. So I think um, smaller breweries will probably look at going that way. It's not um, uncommon now in world of craft brewing that um, smaller breweries are starting to come together and work together, um, especially if it's synergistic. It's all about those connections, though. Do you think Kaneki was a success? For their shareholders, maybe? It had clearly been for sale for some time before it sold. So, you know, when they when the Kaneki Consortium came together, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, I um, can't remember exactly when, but it was one of the early movers of consolidation. It was almost an exit strategy from something that wasn't quite paying off, was always an outsider, um, my outsider's perspective. But we might even... Uh, reach out to some some of our US correspondents to get their take on it. Yeah, I think Kaneki, uh, depending on how you define its success. So if you're talking about volumes, they were definitely successful there. If you're talking okay. about um, providing exit points for a lot of different founders of a lot of different companies um, that walked out with some pretty good pay packets. Um, so it wasn't really just one brewery selling, but it was multiple breweries selling. Um, I would say if you talk to those founders, they would have considered it a success. But then as a business, as a conglomerate itself for the share price or the, for the price that it sold to Monster Energy, it's it's up for debate whether that was a successful price. Yeah. And it would have been hard, you know, when you look at Ballast Point, um, once sold at a billion dollars and then, it, as you said last week, it sold at 10 cents on the dollar. Um, it puts downward pressure on most brewery prices. Can you imagine the person that was like, yep, yep, we should buy it for a billion dollars and then only <laughs> a couple of years later to resell it. I'm sure that person's no longer there. Yeah, well, yeah, and exactly. So uh, anyway, um, we'll, we sit back and watch as we do at Bruce News and uh, see what comes. Uh, also on the news, sales stagnate but profits up at Endeavor Group. Sales growth has steadied across Endeavor Group, declining slightly in its retail arm after a challenging year, its first as an independently listed business. Across the group, revenue rose slightly to $11.6 billion. Uh, profit for the year after tax increased 11.2% to $495 million, it told the ASX on Tuesday. However, sales in the retail division declined 0.9% to $10.09 billion. Retail EBIT declined 0.4% in the year to $666 billion, a very evil number there, uh, compared to the 20.7% increase in hotel EBIT, which reached $315 million. Um, my takeaway from this is when you see a headline... Sales stagnate, but profits up. Something is generating a higher yield from less sales. And when I looked into it, it seemed to be a lot of the home brand, you know, what, what we would call home brand or a lot of their own brand. And 479 new private label products and focused on premiumization. And again, it's something that we've been saying for a while on Brews News is... 18 months ago at the height of COVID, it was Love Your Local was the BWS slogan, but there's been a quiet replacement of small indie brands with very, very, very similar looking Endeavor brands. Um, and recently, uh, we, we've seen 
you know, like even James Atkinson's Drink Adventures podcast, which is a brilliant podcast, but doing a thing for Zythos Brewing um, with, uh, you know, Kiralee Waldhorn uh, spruiking the the, 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 the Zythos brands. And, uh, you know, that to me seems to be A, where Endeavour is getting its growth from. And that is a massive alarm bell from, if I owned a brewery that was, that had grown on the back of COVID on a re- you know, on wholesaling packaged to Dan Murphy's, I would be really uh, looking to see how much we relied on them because I don't think that's a guaranteed uh, flow of our product. I uh, I like that we both read the article and picked out exactly the same point that stood out <laughs> like alarm bells. So I think when when bigger companies like this release these reports, it's really important or quite good insight for craft brewers to read this kind of stuff because it kind of shows you the trends, like the big mega trends that are happening across the nation. Um, But yeah, that 479 new private labels launched this year. That includes wine. That's not just beer. And RTDs and seltzers and and all the rest. But it's still 479 new products on a shelf and there's only so much shelf space that's there. So I think that's um, it's a really good indication of how they operate. You know, they're looking at data through all of their stores, and this is including every BWS and Dan Murphy's in the country, and then basically go, oh, there's a gap, there's an opportunity, let's do it better, let's do it cheaper, let's do it more colourful, whatever it may be, slide it into the shelf right next to the thing that's selling really well, and all of a sudden you're making a much better margin on that product as the person that actually produced that or that beverage. So they're going to keep on doing it. This is a this is the Coles and Woolies model, right? This is the home brand product model so they're going to continue to do so yeah i was going to say that it's a they're fairly rapacious and i just looked up the meaning aggressively greedy or grasping rapacious landlords and i think yeah well pretty close <laughs> again it, 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 you, you be pretty the judge but up. it's one of the it's just one of the reasons why over the years you know as a journalist like you know at the end of the day business is is business and people will get away with what they get away with but as a journalist i've really banged on the labeling question um you know because i think you know the the independent brewers association push independence and if people care about independence that will get traction but you know and and this goes back to the days of mountain goat when mountain goat were getting a lot of their beers made you know by asahi at laverton and not being really transparent about the contract brewing operation or anything like that and you know, I recorded a chat with a salesperson 10 years ago where I was asking about, oh, this um, Steamrail brand, you know, what's that? Where's that from? Where's the Steamrail brewery? And they're going, oh, look, I don't know where it is, but it's a small brewery in Melbourne that makes that as well. And so pointing to the Mountain Goat beer. And, you know, Steamrail is, was the Coles version of the beer and Mountain Goat was a known independent. Yeah. And it was kind of like, well, if, if A is independent... And B is made at the same place as A, then A equals B, even though B is owned by. And it was, and it really devalued the brand. And you know, we, we saw the the Byron Bay Pale Lager um, situation, where you know, if people care and if it matters to them, they should clearly be able to identify and not have, you know, confusing stories or mixed messages. And a lot of independent brewers um, and a lot of contract brands have to my way of thinking contributed to that in a way you know you've got one that we've highlighted is bondi which is a contract brand they tell a very convincing story about our brewery in bondi which is 
the owner's homebrew kit, perfectly fine. He's got a homebrew kit, but you know, when there isn't clarity on the label, it makes you know the biggest players um, able to. You know, if people are only buying on price, and Woolworths can deliver a beer that serves your needs at a price and makes you feel okay about it, that's that's the market, and that's what consumers want. My my question is always. Well, if that's genuinely what people want, why do you go to such lengths to hide behind other brands? And secondly, why do you make your products look so much like the independents? Um, you know, if, if people just want a beer at a price and the independents doesn't matter. Uh, and that's where labeling comes in. And, you know, it's always been, this is the end result of what I think has been a very, very long, slow decline as a result of labeling. And I think it's it's widespread now. So the labeling thing is a bit of a bugbear of mine you know i work in the industry and i often find it quite hard to work out sometimes where a beer is popped up from so if i'm somewhere so uh, for instance my local pizzeria had a uh, effectively a clean skin run of lager made for them and i know that a south australian brewery is making it for them but i don't know which one yep. because it says on the side of it made for and then the pizza company and then the pizza company's address and i'm like that's actually an illegal label like by law, it should say it's it's area that it's produced, and usually that's how I deduce who's been brewing some some beverages. Yeah, but I think as a push, really, what we should be doing as an industry is, I don't think contract brewing should be considered the dirty word that it is. You know, I no, think absolutely, brands that do contract brew should put you know brewed by us with our mates at, and then put the address of the other brewery. Like that's fine. Uh, well, yeah, I think that transparency yeah. is needed. If, if I was contract brewing, that's what I would do. Other people might want to obscure that and say that, you know, it is that small dusty shed out the back that three mates came together over a barbecue and decided to make a brewery. But really, in, in essence, they're getting half a million litres made at the local contract brewer. So, sometimes we have to have a bit of truth. Yeah, I have that problems with that whole our mates down the road. No, it's called contract brewing because you've got a business relationship. Yeah. They're, they're not brewing it because they're your mates. Um and that's, again, you know, like <laughs> Cam and Dave were industry leaders, great guys, and I had some very hard conversations with them back in the day, you know, about their process. But, you know, when people who are as beloved and contributed to the industry as much, everyone goes, oh, well, you know, this behavior is acceptable because look at, you know, and, and there has been this slow and steady decline. And we got a media release this week, um, that, and I, I can't say too much, but a prominent person is buying into a brand, is all I'll say because the story is about to come out and we're sort of under an embargo. And I thought, oh wow, I've never even heard of this um, brewery. And uh, the, the 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 headline is locally made beers by award winning brewers. You know, and uh, we're all about balance. We believe beer should be uh, the best locally malted. And it's telling this story, um, our story. It's pretty simple: quality ingredients, talented people. Um, you know, our brewers, and always referring to our brewers. It's a contract. And you go, well, where is this brewery? And uh, Everything about the narrative is designed to give the appearance that there's a brewery, but there isn't, and it's contract brewed and things like that. And on one hand, contract brewing shouldn't be a dirty word because it's a perfectly legitimate route to market. And yet it's it's kind of like if the contract brewers always say, this is perfectly legitimate, there's nothing wrong with contract brewing, why are they the ones who are so desperate to avoid telling the truth? You know, and, and, and trying to mask and trying to use language that hides the fact that there is no ex-brewery. Craft beer is romantic. Craft beer is um, 
there's that romance in craft beer, right? So that that story is part of how smaller craft breweries survive. That's what differentiates your craft brewery from the next one. I think Sabrina touched on it last week. The yeah. reason why I keep on going back to Brewery X is because, you know, my dog's in there. I like the story. I can bring my kids. You know, I have a beer in the sunshine. Um, the reason why we like particular brands is sometimes not because of the way it was produced or the rest of it. It's that little bit of that romance and that story. And I agree with you. I would much rather see contract brewers not obscure what's going on. But I think that's an industry-wide change of something that we can do. On the um, on the pinnacle versus craft brewing side of things and, and mm. putting stuff in, I do know behind the scenes that the, um, the IBA is working again much more strongly on launching another consumer-facing um, education program for the certified independent seal. That's going to be going out again in another big push. Um, it's obviously uh, the IBA has had a couple of lean years with COVID mm. and all the rest of it. Um, but as we come out of COVID, I think there's going to be a really big push for that independent seal. And again, that'll be another thing you can put on the cans to say, hey, this brewery is a little bit different to that brewery. And hopefully consumers then can make those choices for themselves to support, mm. you know, fresh Australian independent craft beer. As a journalist, you know, I, I take a fairly unbiased view about the industry, you know, I, I, I think, but as a consumer, you know, I make my own purchasing decisions. Um, and I think that small independent craft breweries add vibrancy and have created the diversity in beer that we have that makes it possible for the big brewers to, you know, do what they do. And they, they do, they make great beer, they make it to a good price um, and, you know, make it accessible to a much wider audience than probably a lot of small brewers do. So it's not that sort of thing. But again, you know, I, I think when you've got small brewers who are willingly muddying the water, they make it much harder for all brewers to tell, you know, a, a, a clear story that consumers can choose to opt into or not. Totally agree. And and on the fact whether the uh, Pinnacle things is working, seventy percent of their customers walked out with one of their products this year. I'm included yeah. in that. I've bought one of their products this year, <laughs> so there you go. It's working. Maybe in wine, I'm not as well versed in that. That's the thing, you know. And, and it, it, it's always that's why I drink widely, you know, because when I go into a restaurant or when I go into a bottle shop and buy a bottle of wine, which I do, I don't know the, you know, my day job isn't investigating who owns every winery and so I've got friends who are very knowledgeable in wine and they make the same expression that I do when somebody rocks up with you know hey look at this cool craft beer that I've got Zytho you know I've read all of these great things about it you know isn't it isn't it great and you go you do know it's made by Woolworths oh no 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 I didn't and you can see them deflating a little bit not because they don't like the taste anymore but as you said there is that magic of the story and our perception of flavor isn't just the physical characteristics of a product it's what we bring to our appreciation of that product which is how much we buy into the story so yeah moving on employee share scheme paves way for a potential wayward ipo very interesting story uh, sydney's wayward brewing company has launched a new ownership model which will give employees shares in the business with a view to an eventual ipo wayward's employee share ownership plan ESOP means that 4% of the business has been offered to employees as share options, with additional share options available each year depending on company performance. Wayward would not be looking at a buyout situation, according to founder Peter Phillip, who's a former chair of the IBA, but instead was gearing up for an initial public offering, which will see the business become publicly listed on the ASX. 
The ASX currently features only Mighty Craft, Brew and Good Drinks Australia, and how much longer Brew will be ASX listed remains to be seen, and Good Drinks Australia, owner of Gage Roads as representatives from the brewing industry. Um, mate, there's so much interesting stuff in this. Again, going back to the capital that businesses need to grow. Yeah, completely different way of doing it again. So we're seeing yet another way to raise capital um, for activity. I think this is an interesting one. I think um, this follows some of what's happening in the US craft brewing scene. So some of the breweries over there have experimented with the same kind of employment, uh, employee ownership scheme. This one's 4% of the company. So um, as share options as well, which I thought was important. Um, But it could provide a way that people can do this in a way that's sustainable going forwards. Because as founders, if you know anyone at Wayward in the future would like to exit, if something is on the ASX, that's a way easier way of doing it. So yeah, I think it's quite an interesting way of doing it and I'm, I'm keen to see how they go. And it, 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 it signals fairly um, ambitious plans, I'd imagine, because like that was where um, crowdsource funding came in because it's an expensive process to go through you really need to dot your i's and cross your t's so uh you know I, I, again read into an asx listing what, what, what you will but it's certainly a a step up from uh you know in terms of ambition for sure and I, I'd, I'd assume they're going to be chasing quite a bit of volume in the future so if this allows them some of that capital to do so and then you know put towards that asx entry fees and all the rest of it then power to them i'll I'll be watching from the sidelines cheering them on hopefully they're successful i mean there's not much else to say exciting news and i'm sure there is going to be more news coming out of it um moving on hpa invests in a new pellet plant hpa has purchased a former tobacco cooperative a victoria property at myrtleford which it plans to transform into a new pellet plant by 2024. The new facility will support the centralisation of pelleting and packaging hops from HPA's Victorian and Tasmanian growing regions, which have a, which will total 900 hectares, or an estimated 2,400 metric tonnes by 2024. It will handle every hop bale pressed from crop 2024 onwards, producing in excess of 50 tonnes of pellets per day. That's exciting. I don't know if you've ever toured hop yards during harvest, Matt, but oh, 50 tonnes of hop pellets a day. Yeehaw. I can't wait to go visit and smell it. <laughs> yeah, yeah this is huge. It makes you very tired, yeah. It does, it does. But um, this is such a such an awesome... I love all aspects of this. So you've got $20 million in, you're getting a whole bunch of new jobs into that uh, area. You're rejuvenating an old site. So a bit of a white whale that was just sitting there for a while. And it also doubles HBA's capacity. So... I think OJ's quote a little bit later in the article actually pinpoints it all. It's all about quality um, and making sure that we can produce a whole bunch of Australian hops that can both, you know, service the local domestic industry, but then also go overseas as well. So this is as much of a home run as I've seen anyone do an expansion plan and follows on from a $50 million investment in new acreage that they did a couple of years ago. So clearly HBA is putting the money up to make sure they continue to grow. Um, and it's pretty exciting times. We're very lucky as brewers in Australia to have a company such as HBA to be pushing a whole bunch of Australian hops like they do. The, the one thing I'll say, you know, again, it's, it's it's one of those challenging things is I remember we posted, uh, there was a story that we did and somebody, you, know, you always get odd Facebook comments or people weighing in and somebody point, you know, saying that HPA is foreign owned. 
And the money, and you're going, well, but they've also invested 50, yeah, I know, well, and it is, it's owned by the Bath Haas Group, but at the same time, everyone employed is Australian, you know, they're, they're investing $50 million over the last few years in regional Australia, and it's, it's sometimes when you just drop, you know, when, when people thoughtlessly drop, you know, things like ownership, you know, it can sometimes conflate the, the discussion. It's, it's it's such an important industry. It's uh, you know important to brand Australia, Australian craft breweries, and HPA is completely committed to investing in the Australian hop industry. In our times too, while we're in the US, like if we said we were an Australian craft brewer, um, people would instantly go, "Oh, I want to talk about Galaxy." Like if you heard Australian craft brewer, most American brewers would be like, "Let's talk Galaxy. Let's talk about other hops coming out of Australia." And I was like, "No, I'm not going to tell you about the other hops coming out of Australia. I want to keep some of those hops in Australia, please." Um, I think that Aussie hop market does a lot of things for our brewing scenes status internationally. Um, it's the same way that New Zealand hops. If you look at New Zealand hops, that's also a super successful story. That's a different story, though. That's a hop growers co-op producing a whole bunch of great hops and sending it across. But that's really important for the brand of New Zealand as well, um, especially in different craft beer circles, different industries across the world. So, no, very exciting. Online liquor delivery numbers slow. Fewer people had online liquor products delivered in 2021 as more gravitated towards click and collect, according to recent data by IRI Australia. The data found a six percentage point decrease in people buying online and having products delivered compared to 2020. In contrast, the data has also found an increase in click and collect from 47 to 55%. Anything you want to uh, observe there? I thought it was a good report. Again, this is um, great great reporting by Vivian on this one. Um, Obviously, you read the report and you're like, well, that's quite obvious with the online purchasing being quite heavy during that COVID period. But I think the interesting one is coming out of COVID, people are still buying online, but then choosing to click and collect. So I don't know whether that makes it part of their their rounds as they go to shopping and then they just pop past and click and collect whatever they collected. Um, but then I think Mel Anderson is quoted in the article. I think she's from Growth Scope. Um, but it was, she highlighted that it's a convenience question now. So some people find it too hard to shop online and work out the credit card thing and all the rest of it. Some people don't really like dealing with Australia Post. So that's the reason maybe why they aren't getting it delivered. But then some people just want it here and now. So that's the reason why they're going back. And I think that human connection point coming out of COVID, especially if you've been in a state that was a lot of lockdowns and all the rest of it, of course you want to go back to the craft beer store and or just a BWS or Dan's and have a look at the whole range and see what's out there. Um, and they also said that the Aussie craft beer is in the bottom 10 of online sales uh, versus in-store, which is not surprising. I I shop craft beer by looking at a massive wall of labels of beautiful coloured cans at my local. And that's how I kind of, I'm like looking at it all going, wow, it's overwhelming. What haven't I seen before? That's what I, that's how I make my purchase decisions. It's very hard to do online. So what do you think? Yeah, but absolutely. Like it, it, it's, it's one of those ones that, Again, I probably haven't looked too deeply in. Um, you know, there, there has been a big move to online purchasing, um, but delivery, I, I found that quite interesting. And I was trying to sort of think, and I think you've actually provided some great insight into why that might be. And, uh, you know, if you've got liquor delivery 
there's a whole range of complications about being home, having ID, um, those sorts of things that, that, that make it, whereas Click and Collect has some of the best um, elements of online in that you'd go, gee, this is, do they have this in stock? What is the price? You can do all of those things, but then buy it and it's there when you next swing by or you, you can pick it up and you know, at a time that's convenient to you. And uh, yeah, so it was just an interesting insight that, and also highlights that we're always in a uh, ever-changing market. I mean, click and collect is super convenient. I click and collect at Bunnings all the time because otherwise I'd be in there for five hours. But um, the real nugget <laughs> and spending was more. actually from Mel. <laughs> and spending more, exactly right. It's a good way of me <laughs> avoiding spending more. But I think the real nugget of that whole article was actually at the end from Mel who kind of pointed out that if a craft brewer is worried about getting ranged at a multinational uh, bottle shop, so BWS Dan's or whatever, and is worried about getting that that kind of uh, reach, if they don't have anything online, that's the quickest way for them to do it. So it shows that the consumer behavior out there at the moment is people still ordering online. And I thought about it as I was reading it, I'm like how many local breweries to me have online sales that, is that allow you to click and collect? Not many. And then how many, I've also this week just sent South Australian Stout to my friends in WA and it was really simple to do online and I hit it and bang, away it sent. Um, so that can kind of convenience, I don't think we had a couple of years ago, um, which is really spectacular. It makes beer a bit more akin to wine. Wine's been doing this forever, sending things across the country for you. I think that's the real convenient part. So I think if there's craft brewers out there that are going, how do we increase footprint and all the rest of it? Instead of trying to get ranged in a different state at a BWS, how about you just lean in and put more money towards your online sales? So... I think the IBA also does a discount with Sendle, which is one of the major senders. So there's definitely opportunities out there for craft brewers. Excellent. Uh, moving on, solid growth for Aurora despite price pressures. Aurora, one of the industry's biggest packaging suppliers, has reported a strong year after a disciplined execution of strategy. Some nice marketing buzzwords there. Uh, sales revenue rose to $4.1 billion, up 15.6%, uh, according to release, results released to the ASX last week by the company, which supplies glass bottles, aluminium cans, closures, tabs, and ends to the beverage industries. Cans still going strong. Sleek and slim cans coming in, but I think that just mirrors the RTD and Seltzer growth, to be honest. Seltzers tend to go on their yep. slim cans, so that's, I think, where it's that's where it's going. Um, yeah. They're still committed to making more glass uh, recycled in their products, which is cool. 2030, I reckon they'll get to 65%. So those are the things that jumped out at me. Anything jump out at you? Those are the, always the questions that I think uh, it's always interesting to hear a brewer um, because as journalists, we often reach out. We've seen in America a lot of can shortages and Ball Corporation has had troubles. And we, when we reach out to Aurora, um, you know, the well-trained media um flax, uh, you know, sort of deny and bat. And it's often a different story that you hear from brewers. Um, so whenever those reports come out, uh, I, I always like to hear back from brewers about what they're experiencing. You're probably talking to one of the wrong brewers. I'm not packaging at the moment, Matt. So yeah. uh, unfortunately, I haven't really got my ear to the ground. I do know that it is, um, everything's going up across the board. So whether that's ingredients, packaging, materials, cardboard boxes, everything's going up. And that's creating extra pressures. On the supplier side of things, I've definitely heard in the US they've had a hell of a time last couple of years securing enough can supply. And I do know that here it's been difficult to sometimes secure supply. Um, 
I do know that Ball, one of the major manufacturers in the US, has just recently put up their minimums for can orders. And they've closed a couple of plants, if I'm remembering. Yeah. So if you're a small craft brewery, it used to be a minimum of 25,000 cans printed. Um, and now those minimums are up over 100,000. So, and in some cases, 250,000 cans. So imagine if you're doing a beer for the first you know, quarter and you're not sure how your pale ale is going to go on the shelves. You can't experiment with 25,000 cans now um, printed. You need to go all in, quarter of a million cans and go for it. So um, I definitely see or I've heard some of some of the stresses in the US. And obviously I'm not packaging here, so can't talk to what's actually happening here in Australia, but I'd, I'd assume very similar things will start to happen here. Usually the US is a bit of a canary in the coal mine for us. Very much. Moving on. Now, just... Other news, something that uh, was slipped in, I think it might have come through the Facebook group or certainly uh, it it was on our radar. We've talked a lot about the rise of the anti-alcohol lobbyist. Um, And, you know, alcohol is a product that we need to be very mindful of. Um, It does have potential, uh, you know, downsides in in terms of the habits that it forms and the lifestyle, and then also the impact that alcohol can have itself no one can deny that. At the same time, there has been a rise of people who don't like, who just don't like it, and will not acknowledge any positives associated with it, and uh, you know, want to paint the alcohol industry as the tobacco industry of the 1950s of hiding research and things like that. And so, again, that was me editorialising, but this article looks at the rise of drinks with little or no alcohol in that mimic the flavor style and packaging of traditional alcoholic drinks. And they've managed to make taking alcohol out of a product as somehow nasty and sinister. Um, So there's a link in the show notes to anyone who wants to read this, but early analysis suggests zero alcohol drinks can be beneficial for people who are looking to cut back their drinking. However, potential benefits need to be balanced with concerns being raised by public health advocates. Some adults might be drinking zero alcohol products in addition to their current alcohol consumption rather than as a substitute. I, but no, no evidence okay. is uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so no evidence is uh, presented for that. There is no marketing duck. It's some might be. Um, that's not you know. An, what, what is it? Yeah, anecdote isn't data, or you know, um, fear isn't data. Um, you know, I fear there's monsters under my bed, but you know, I haven't found any yet. Um, zero alcohol products are being marketed as appropriate in situations where alcohol isn't appropriate such as swimming, driving, or operating machinery, which works to normalize use. Again, no data. Bit of a long bow on that one. I mean, we do see a lot of advertisements for, so the the Heineken ad, for instance, the guy sitting in his car by the beach drinking a beer, the cop comes over. You know, yes, I can agree that that might, might normalize drinking of someone in a car, but you'd hope that the punchline to all of these ads is like alcohol-free, alcohol-free, I'd hope that the average consumer would be able to, you know, make that connection. Yeah, well, I think they can. And, I mean, that's the point. It means that, you know, in in Australia, the drink driving laws and the move from 0.08 to 0.05 vastly changed the Australian drinking landscape. 
you know, and it gave rise to the mid-strength beer in, in the late 80s and early 90s. And, it, you know, Australia is one of the largest mid-strength markets in the world because of those things. We're so aware of it. Um, and the point that those ads to me is making is that, well, if you want to drive, if you want to be responsible, if you want to be safe, but still have this product that is legal and have the flavour but not the downside this is the way to do it and yet they're now saying that it's normalizing it but isn't it normalizing yeah. responsibility again it, if you are, if you take a negative view of alcohol you're going to you're going to see everything is sinister they're not actually being even willing to look at the positives and what this might do and uh you know again as i often say you know they um often you know the the, the anti-alcohol lobbyists talk about the rise in hospital admissions on a Saturday night being due to alcohol um, as, as if it's, you know, a bl- and it's definitely a problem. You know, there, there are places that I don't like to go on a Saturday night because of street drinking and things like that. And that's problematic and I don't defend that. But at the same time, if you're just going to say Saturday night's admissions are because of this and so it's only negative, that's a little bit like saying, well, on Saturday mornings, hospital admissions are from people spraining their ankles at football you know people or or, or running or things like that you know people shouldn't be running because it's bad for you there is a positive there is a positive benefit to alcohol consumption as well um you know that that needs to be understood and 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 not diminished but yeah they they, they refuse to look it was a yeah it was an interesting link to read because it was uh it started off nice and i'm i agree with this and then all of a sudden yeah started making some assumptions there that I was like, well, hold on a second. And I think that non-alcoholic beer, you know, I, I quite often uh, will grab a non-alcoholic beer. There's some pretty good ones here in South Australia. Um, Big Shed do one, Little Bang do one. Little Bang one's called a spacer. And I actually like it because that's exactly how I use non-alcoholic beers. So, um, you know, if I'm driving, I know that I've only got a certain amount of beers and a certain amount of alcohol I can consume. Um, so we'll go visit a brewery, have one of their lower alcohol offerings. And then a lot of our craft breweries here have that non-alc beverage offer, if not from themselves, but from another brewery in town. And I'll be able to grab a non-alcoholic beer and continue that that socialization. You don't feel like you're output. Mm. I think it's only positive to have non-alcoholic beers out there. Um, I, do, I did continue to read their website and they had some tips to prevent and reduce harm, especially with non-alcoholic beverages which i thought was a bit of it's a bit hard to create harm with non-alcoholic beverages but some of their recommendations suggested you know um to make sure that you're not impressionable to children perhaps don't consume non-alcoholic beverages in an environment where alcoholic beverages wouldn't be appropriate and i I can kind of get around that common sense so you know for instance if you're on the boat or whatever, you know, swinging around, you know, maybe don't pummel down a ton of non-alcoholic beers and, and kind of focus on that water safety. I understand that. I, that's, that's common sense kind of stuff, though. I think these kind of comments sometimes, like you say, come off as an attack. And I think the people that are making them don't do themselves any favours with their other points on being anti-alcohol. You, you, you start to devalue your arguments on the anti-alcohol stuff when you go after something, a product that we're producing that has no alcohol in it. 
and it, mate, that, that, that is a brilliant point, you know, and it, I, I think that's what they, they'd undermine their credibility because we do need to be mindful. We do need to educate um, appropriately and fairly and in a balanced way about alcohol so people are aware of it. But it's, you make your warnings too easy to d- dismiss when you overreach in your arguments. Um, and then, because moving on to the next point, zero al- alcohol drinks also uh, being used to increase awareness and acceptability of alcohol products and brands amongst young people. And that's something that we've talked about on the podcast. So I think having Heineken Zero in the soft drink aisle of the supermarket amongst soft drinks does open the industry. I don't know that they are deliberately doing it to groom, which is one of the terms that's been used. I don't think that they're specifically doing that, but it does normalize um, you know, alcohol. And I think that's where it does get a little bit uncomfortable. And you know, some of the brands that have grown up like Sober, which isn't really marketed as strongly as a beer, it's a, you know, it's a sophisticated soft drink um, for, 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 for adults. And I think that's the, the, the place, but anything that's branded co-branded or you know, as a ex- brand extension of an alcohol product probably does need to be treated a little bit differently to avoid even the perception of that risk. I think brewers would take that on. Uh, fuzzy edges on that one would be, so for instance, I can walk down to my local IGA and buy a Cooper's homebrew kit. You know, yep. that's Cooper's branded. You know, if you're going to regulate against the Nile beers, then does some of the homebrewing stuff also have to fall into that same category under the same same rules? That would only be my mm. the fuzzy edges on that. That's what policy is for. But the, the actually the one and the, the one that I think is fascinating to to discuss over and over and and it's it's my argument that there isn't a huge long term future for zero alk beer specifically is young people who consume zero alcohol drinks might have an increased likelihood of drinking alcohol and starting to drink at an earlier age. You know, one of the things I've heard from brewers at the big breweries in the, you know, particularly even before the craft beer movement was beers like Forex were progressively becoming less bitter. And we saw the rise of the Coronas and the less bitter products because young people have an aversion to bitterness. Um, It's hardwired into us. You know, our, our bitter receptors are designed to tell us what foods might be poisonous because poison is tends to be bitter, um, and it's, it's it's nature's warning. And coming to bitterness is an acquired taste. And one of the reasons that beer grew was because it was a socially accepted way for young men to consume alcohol. Because wine was, you know, twenty thirty years ago was seen as a little bit of feet. Um, you know, you didn't drink West Coast coolers or sweets. So it had to be something that young men felt comfortable drinking. And that's increasingly going away as, you know, there's a wider range of beverages. And so many people recount, you know, their first taste of beer and going, gee, I don't know how dad drinks this, but I'd better stick at it because that's how you consume alcohol. I'm still, the jury out is still out for me on why an 18-year-old would want to drink a beer that uh, something that they don't find palatable because of the bitterness when it doesn't have that thing that they are chasing and acquiring the taste for, which is alcohol. So, you know, I, 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 I don't know, and time will tell on this one, whether people, there is a social conditioning reason for people to acquire the taste for beer without alcohol in it, or whether it'll just be other sophisticated adult beverages are the thing that they will gravitate towards, which 
damages the, 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 the beer industry in total. So I don't know that, you know, maybe wine, spirits, definitely, um, non-alcohol spirits, because they're much more like a cordial, and you can do a lot more with the flavor than traditional beer flavors. So, um, yeah. Yeah, young adults, you know, moving away from drinking completely, really. Um, and there's a couple of different reasons for that. I was listening to a podcast I was talking about the uh, Japanese government offering incentives for uh, their younger people to start drinking again because they're missing out on tax dollars from beer. Um, <laughs> this went through a couple of weeks ago. So the government over there is offering incentives for their younger people to, to begin drinking beer again. Um, and the person that was commenting was someone that was in their 20s uh, and they were talking about how because of COVID... They have had limited social engagements with their friends. And so it becomes quite tiresome now when they catch up with their friends and someone's like, let's go out and get absolutely drunk and smashed and, you know, write ourselves off. It, it becomes less uh, socially appealing. And then also, you know, we've got an entire generation of people that have known nothing but the internet and social media. So they know that everything that they do every time that they drink beer if they were to make a fool of themselves drinking beverages, then it is instantly captured and saved on social media for all prosperity. So I think that movement towards lower alcohol drinking is is kind of a two punch there, the social media generation and a, and a bit of the COVID stuff where a lot of the, the younger adults now are sitting there going, what's the point? And you're starting to see a lot more of them not consuming any alcohol whatsoever. So I can only think that by us offering a product like non-alcoholic beer or something like that it could be something for them with friends that do drink beers or stuff like that it allows them to have a beverage but a lot of them are just choosing to eschew it anyway and go i don't need to drink alcohol at this party i've got this other beverage kombucha whatever it may be mm. it's mm. yeah it's completely it's it's very interesting to hear um and it definitely as i was coming up was not part of our considerations None of my mates were reaching for non-alcoholic beers at the first couple of years of uni, that's for sure. And, and look, again, I, I don't dismiss that concern, but I would much rather see research rather than just fears. Yeah. Because non-alcohol is, is should be a net benefit. It should be good. It shouldn't just be seen as something that they, you know, want to stamp out. So, But, mate, if you did, you know, say you had a... Um, a, a can of non-alcoholic beer that you wanted to sort of talk a little bit about, um, you know, and, and, and maybe promote responsibly to adults in a, you know, socially acceptable way. Um, can you think of how you would go about, you know, sort of getting it? A- if I wanted to do a limited run of cans and find some sort of labelling or something like that, Matt, yeah. I'd probably go chat to Rellings. <laughs> but I, I feel terrible about getting our guests to become uh, pitchmen, uh, <laughs> but we do appreciate that. But yes, uh, beer can labels are regarded these days as the new mini billboard of the bed- beverage industry. They say a lot as an advertisement that you can hold in your hand. Uh, And the people who can help you make your mini billboard better are Rallings label stickers and packaging. You can give them a call on 1300 852 235 or email sales at rallingsprint.com.au to see how they can help your brand sing. (laughs) While we're uh, doing a little bit of a commercial stuff, how did you get started in 
brewing. Did you start as a home brewer? No, actually. I had a long and varied career through university. Um, I got to uni and was doing medical science at the time. I had views at one point to become a doctor, but just missed out on that. Um, So I ended up doing medical science. And then uh, when I got to uni, I found the tavern and was quite enamored with the university tavern and the lifestyle there and drank a lot of beers. And then uh, a mate and I actually started a club called the Beer Appreciation Club there and got everyone together. And we used to do both beer events for beer connoisseurs. So we actually had Chuck Hahn and um, Tony Jones uh, from the West End Brewery. Two legends, they came out yes. to present. Two legends of the brewing industry. It's funny because I, I see Tony all the time now and I, I regularly regale him with that story. But um, yeah, we'd have events like that and then we'd also have kind of the beer bogan events. But um, I got really close to finishing my degree and in medical science and was like, uh, maybe I don't want to do this for the rest of my life, look down a microscope and be uninteresting. And then I kind of looked around my room at the share house I was in and it was just covered in you know, beer books and beer bottles from, like, I've been going through all the Belgian beers and German beers. And I'm like, obviously, there's a passion there. Can I turn this into a job? So, yeah, ended up swinging my degree around and came out with a degree in viticulture and enology and did the postgraduate in brewing. So, I did do some home brews through the time, but they were never any good. I think most craft brewers end up being just brewers that stuck with it, right? Because everyone fails on their third batch of home brew. So, yeah. Well, but if you if, maybe if you know medicine's loss is our gain in the brewing industry, but you know maybe you, you could have avoided some of those homebrew failures if you'd attended, you know, for example, a national homebrew conference. Uh, and you know, if you are a homebrewer, <laughs> I didn't even realise that was a throw. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even realise that was a throw. I went into a massive story there. No, this looks amazing. Great story. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, <laughs> great conference. story. There you go. It is taking place on October 14 to 15 in Melbourne. The Australian National Homebrewing Conference returns in 2022 for a celebration of brewing as a hobby, of beer and beverages and all things fermentable. Over two days, ANHC 22 will quench your thirst for knowledge with its diverse program with keynotes from Brandon Jones of Embrace the Funk and writer of the new IPA, Scott Janish. Now that will be, we've had Scott Janish on the uh, show before. Very much uh, worth hearing. Uh, Prepare to sit back, enjoy organoleptic exercises uh, during presentations and feast on tasty delights during the breaks. Whether you're just starting out or an experienced home brewer, we have something to cater for everyone. Visit anhc.com.au to find out more and book your ticket. Of course, there's a link in the show notes. Now, mate, I just saw that we've re- it's been a big news week and we've really uh, gone deep on some of these things. So we do have a um, brewery of the week. Um, so we might even talk because you've got a suggestion for brewery of the week, which is great. You're using your local connections down there and the Brewery of the Week is brought to you by Bluestone Yeast. Bluestone Yeast have over 100 yeast strains in their biobank and are always adding more. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or call Derek on 03-8518-3172 and talk all things yeast. Steve, what's your Brewery of the Week brought to by Bluestone Yeast? I know a lot of the previous Brewery of the Weeks have been quite established brands, but I wanted to give a good old shout out to a really young brewery down here in uh, the southern suburbs of Adelaide, just at the top of the Fleurio Peninsula, Kickback Brewing in Aldinga. Uh, Brenton Showmaker and the team are producing some amazing beers. And when they built the brewery, they built it. So to give you an idea of Aldinga, it's kind of a right towards the very bottom of uh, uh, Adelaide. It's a seaside kind of uh, suburb, um, beautiful little spot, 
but really didn't have a lot of options, uh, especially in their little main drag. And so he's opened this brewery, and since he's opened about a year ago, that place has been heaving. Really good beer, really good food, really good vibes. They've just knocked it out of the park. So a big ups to Kickback Brewing in Aldinga. I think they're doing great things. Wonderful, and there'll be a link to them in the show notes. And again, I really need to get down to South Australia and spend a little bit more time uh, with some of these uh, recommendations we've been getting. And we thank Bluestone Yeast for shining a spotlight on uh, Aldinga Brewing. And, and you You're too, more than welcome clearly. to come stay at the farm anytime, Matt. <laughs> thank you, mate. I, I think I'll take you up on that. Uh, I need to get down. Now, just because of time, I'm, I'm going to do this ask about, I'm going to park. We've got a very long, very, uh, you know, great um, article from Anna Battersby, um, a beer report from regional Queensland. So we probably don't have time to do it justice given the amount of uh, thought that's gone into it. But I will say that Anna... If you can shoot us your postal address, we do have a Lark Whiskey uh, pack for you, a Wolf Release 5, to celebrate the fifth year of the shared vision between the House of Lark and Victoria's Wolf of the Willows Brewery. Um, Your letter of the week will receive a Wolf 5 Boilermaker pack, including a Wolf 5 Single Malt Whiskey, the Wolf 5 Johnny Smoke Porter Beer, the Lark Beer Glass, and the Lark Glen Cairn Whiskey Glass. Um, It's... We're, we're, we're still giving it away, even though you can't buy it, dear listener. You missed your chance. You should have listened weeks ago and jumped on. Uh, that's how popular it was. And uh, anyway, Anna, thank you for your letter. We will park that for next week when it's hopefully a slower news week. And uh, But we do have another um, Lark Whiskey pack. So if you've got something to add uh, based on this week's show, please uh, get back to us. Mate, anything else you want to add? Anything that's caught your eye this week that you'd like to throw in before we uh, jump out? I'm all good. There was a big, big news week right there, so I think we're good, mate. It really, I'm, I'm glad that there was just the two of us. I think this could have been like a uh, three-hour episode. It would have been like the Lord of the Rings. I'm always down to talk beer. You know that. <laughs> well, that wraps up another week of news. Your hosts have been me, Matt Kirkegaard, and Steve Brockman. Steve, thank you for being two weeks in. Uh, now, we are going to do a beer as a conversation with you very soon, where we will go a little bit deeper into your background and how you came to be a brewer. But uh, thank you for joining us for the last couple of weeks. Uh, thank you also to Vivian Topalovich, our producer and our editor, Joe Helder. We thank Yakima Chief Hops, Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging, Bluestone Yeast and Lark Whiskey for their support in making this episode possible. Thank you to, to all of you for listening. You can share your thoughts on the show by emailing producer at producenews.com.au or leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. And with that, after a very long show, we are out. Boom. Boom.